Welcome to Season 3, Episode 13 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Ben Harnett. Ben is a writer and poet. His debut novel, The Happy Valley, is out now through Serpent's Key Press. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hi, uh, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only do we share first names, we almost shared last names, theoretically, because that's my mum's maiden name. It's, it's very cool. There are definitely Harnets out there, but not, not a lot. So mm. this was really what a coincidence. I've been loving seeing your pictures of your new house. Do you want to tell me about your life in upstate New York? Yeah, um, we we moved here recently, um, in part just to get uh, more space for ourselves, and also uh, moving back to my hometown, which has been interesting. Uh, we bought a house in Cherry Valley. Uh, we had been living in the Hudson Valley in Beacon, and before that, we were living in Brooklyn. So we're just migrating northward, and uh, so we bought an old house in the village. Uh, it's from around 1830, and have been renovating it. Uh, while living in a cabin uh, outside of town, um, which is where you see the beautiful pictures from. It looks unbelievable, this snow and beautiful sunsets. It just looks amazing. The sunsets have been incredible, although I, I do suspect it has something to do with global warming. Like the sunsets were never so spectacular in my youth, in my memory. So there's really <laughs> something, something has changed. So it's beautiful, but, but mildly un unsettling. <laughs> Tell me about your day job working for the New York Times. Yeah, so I've, I've been working for the New York Times as a software engineer for the past uh, 10 years, uh, coming up on 11 years. So obviously, I like it. Um, it's, it's, a great, um, it's a great job that um, it allows me a little bit of time outside of work to, to do pursue all my various hobbies. And uh, when I was commuting in, it gave me a lot of writing time on the train because I had from Beacon, I had almost a two hour commute door to door. So I got a lot of writing and reading time. Uh, not so much now that I'm a full remote employee, but uh, yeah. With a house up in the middle of nowhere, it must be a great environment for a writer. You would think it's interesting. I'm definitely struggling now with getting um, on a rhythm. Uh, I think mainly it's, it's just because there's a lot of work to do. And so it's like, it's that old adage, right? Like clean your house instead of writing. Well, now it's like do a plumbing project instead of writing, paint <laughs> some shelves instead of writing. Um, so eventually I'll probably be writing to avoid doing house projects. And that's when the real writing will get done. So when do you think you'll move in? Uh, we are hoping to move in any week now, um, so that's very exciting, but we'll be sort of splitting time. It's so weird. We have a little cabin and we have the, the house in town. It feels so weird to have um, sort of a country house for your city house when they're only about six miles separate. <laughs> well, uh, for one for one thing, I'm certainly jealous. Good. That's my my whole goal, especially with social media, is to make everybody <laughs> jealous about the the beauty surrounding me. But uh, no, I mean, I definitely, uh, for me, I really like being 
out in the open in the in the wilderness. Like I I did enjoy living in the city, but I I find that I enjoy the country life much more. Um, I don't know. I like the peace, the nature, the the quiet. Very nice. And a house that is from 1830, it's almost 200 years old. Like this country is barely that. Yeah. Well, it is weird. I mean, I, I spent some time in in Europe when I was younger and they would scoff at those ages. You know, 1830 is like new if you're if you're talking to like, a, you know, someone uh, in Florence mm-hmm. um, where the houses are routinely 500, 600 years old. Um but it is it's it's weird and spooky and it's also interesting because I was just looking at so I, I to touch on my the novel that we're going to talk about the the sort of beginning of the historical action takes place in a in a town very much like the town where I grew up around 1830 and so to think about the house that I that I'm moving into sort of being one of those houses that were there during the time that I was I'm thinking about in in the book is is kind of it's interesting Mm, that's really cool um before we go into happy valley let's talk about how you got into writing I mean I was also just thinking about this today um when I was like six or seven um I used to do a lot of drawing my parents would give me big stacks of of paper we didn't I guess there was no printer paper back then that was before people had printers so it must have been like newsprint or something and I just draw little stick figures and people moving around and um, I'd have these ideas for stories and at one point my my cousins had a computer they were they were more advanced than us and they had one of the first like personal computers Um, and so my mom had me go down there and I dictated a whole story um, to my cousin who typed it out in the uh, on the word processor and printed it out for me. And that was really the first writing that ever happened. I wonder, I've been meaning to go see if I could find it somewhere. I'd be very <laughs> curious. Like, what is this little story? But, but I guess, yeah, I always enjoyed writing stories. Usually they were visual. And so I draw little pictures and, and write text. And actually, you know, I guess I keep doing that now but um so i do that on and on and i guess when i was a teenager they used to have poetry readings that were hosted near my school and so i'd go and i'd see everyone else reading these poems and i'd like scratch some together right there and and read them and i the the act of doing that i really enjoyed and then uh, when i went away to college i started taking creative writing classes and um and so I, I got into creative writing, seriously, primarily poetry, some short stories, um, and pursued that along with my other studies. But um, but when I graduated, the idea of sending out to journals and getting rejected and and the whole rigmarole of it sort of put me off. And I never sort of engaged with the writing community. And I actually gradually just stopped writing and reading altogether in my 20s. Um, and only only in my mid-30s did I really start up both again seriously, which is, it's funny, but now I'm back and I can't stop. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the Happy Valley. It's set in the near future in a post-revolution America. It tells a story of a group of friends growing up in the late 80s 
and their exploration of a secret sect, among a heap of other narrative strands. You've also illustrated, I think, 60-something pictures in this book. Do you want to just give us the, I guess, the basic setup of the novel without giving too much away? So, so yeah. So the basic setup is there's a there's an unnamed narrator, and he is um, he gets a message from one of his childhood friends, this woman June. They've stayed in sort of intermittent touch since then, and she um, she needs his help. Uh, it's like a an emergency message, and he um, goes to talk to her, and. Basically, she fobs off her cat on him and then disappears. And he spends some time, um, you know, sort of just wondering, is this just a normal disappearance or is this something real? And he finally decides to go looking for her. And that's sort of the setup. And it it he he goes up to his hometown in the future <laughs> or, or his present and um, is sort of searching his memory for clues and hints to what may have happened to June. And in doing so, pieces together a story that stretches back to the to the past uh, hundred years or two hundred years before, and then uh, takes us to the future. That's sort of the the rough go, I think. <laughs> no, I think I think that covers quite a lot of it, but there is so many different narrative strands here. You've also got uh, a lawyer and his young protege working on different cases. And there's just so much that went into this book. But one of the things that I really loved about this book was this sense of nostalgia the book brought up for me. It almost has like a Hardy Boys kind of Nancy Drew feel. Um, do you want to tell us about some of those elements of your book? Yeah, I mean, so the and the original idea I had, and I don't think I'm giving away too much, um, was, was to think about, you know, and I, I don't know, if you have them there in Australia, but but here there's these these littered remains of weird social societies like the Temple of Oddfellows and the the Masons Lodges, mm -hmm. and you'd you'd pass through them and see them and and I thought about like all these buildings, you know, maybe owned by the society still kept up, but how many members could they possibly have? How could they keep it running? And so. Um, I had this idea that there is a, a society that's completely defunct except for all of the legal and, and, and economic framework around it. So it's just mm -hmm. sort of this idling machine, this thing sitting there. And, and a young girl who discovers that in her town and comes up with a way to take it over. That was the, the genesis of the idea. And when I started to write it, um, it was intended to be like a short story, five or six pages just just get it out and as i uh wrote it, it just naturally i thought back to the masonic lodge and the temple of odd fellows uh and the american legion hall and all the things in my town growing up and that's really how i think it got connected to my own memory of the place and of growing up and and that i think it gives it this nostalgic edge and drove sort of the creation of everything that that came from it because I sort of, you know, it just spilled out then. Um, and then I, I started to connect, connect it not only to my own nostalgic feelings of my own childhood, but also all of the events that were happening outside of it 
and then all of the history that was embedded in this uh, place and territory underneath it. Um, and as those strands connected, it just built and built and built. Mm. Well, much like America, Australia is full of old Masonic lodges and buildings and all of these places that now get turned into housing developments. But there's still like there's one around the corner for me that's a lodge. I think it's called the Andalusian Buffaloes or something like that. So, that's so crazy. Yeah. It's, it's a funny building because no one ever goes in or out. So <laughs> very strange. <laughs> but speaking of that, and as this podcast, you know, we tend to go back to pinch on at some point, but this kind of had a feel of like something like the crying of lot 49 as well. Cause you do have this idea of things working behind the surface and, you know, secret keys to different places and just that whole idea. I, I really loved. I mean, yeah, if you were going to ask me like, so when I was, when I was nine or 10, I was devouring Hardy boys and Tom mm. Swift um, mm -hmm. and even Nancy Drew stories. Um, and we had tons of them from, from my father, um, and then his his father's childhood, I just had boxes of those books and I'd devour them. And then um, in my mid-teens, I discovered Thomas Pynchon and really just gravitated to his writing style and the density and propelling forward of all of these arcane things that that I barely understood then in, in terms of their where they, they were coming from. And I became fascinated with trying to hunt down what was the source of this or that thing mm -hmm. and um yeah if any of that rubs off rubbed off on my writing now it i i'm thrilled because it it i'm, I'm really delighted um and i think it does come from when you go into that nostalgic frame you start to also um, bring in those elements that were around you then, you know, things that you're reading, things that, um, you know, were in movies and television and popular culture at the time, and they really influence. I mean, I, to be honest, parts of the novel were are influenced by video games that I played, you know, mm -hmm. these old, you know, 16-bit EGA game, adventure games and stuff, and I would find bits of them coming in that I had not thought about for for ages. Yeah, one of the games you bring up is the Oregon Trail, which I remember playing as a, I don't know, a small child in school. And um, yeah, it does really have that almost, what do you, what do you call them? Like the, those adventures where you had to choose what would happen next and yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, uh, the choose, the, well, it's funny, the, the way the book came together too, mm. um, I, I wrote it completely chronologically from mm. start to finish just pretty much from the very earliest part of the stories all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. But obviously when I, when the book got put together, it, I changed the the order and the structure and I actually changed it probably a dozen times before it, it got to the right level. And it does, it is sort of like there, there's moments that are very choose your own adventure and mm -hmm. like what's going to come next and, and trying to get that feeling. And there's actually, there's a particular drawing that that I made of the the kids standing in front of the door to the secret entranceway mm. to to the secret room and and that drawing I think captures that feeling I wanted to to give of being on the threshold of something mm. which is also what that area was in the um 17 and 1800s was it was it was a pioneer area the early 1800s it was on the threshold of um 
you know, on one side was was Western civilization, on the other side was wilderness and native civilizations, which were organized in such a completely different way. And so this this the Happy Valley area or, or what in in the real world was called Cherry Valley it is that sort of borderland. Um, and so, yeah, it was it's reflected there in that. And then I guess you could also see the, the borderland between childhood and, and adulthood, adolescence and, and sort of jaded middle age. Mm. With the illustrations in this book, I think they they really do add to the product as a whole. Do you want to tell us about uh, choosing to put those in and the kind of style they're in as well? Yeah, um, it, I wasn't it wasn't going to be illustrated, obviously, at all. It was just a novel. But um, but um, I got this. I was I got all these Instagram ads for a tablet that was an e-paper tablet. It all comes down to Instagram gadgets, right? <laughs> and uh, I, I was looking at this tablet and I was like, I I can upload PDF files and annotate them. And I'm going to, one of the sidelines, I, I do um, ancient history and I, I write papers very rarely, but try to put together uh, academic work on ancient history. And, and I've been working on something and I needed some way to organize it. So I loaded all the PDFs on and I was going to write my notes there and then get everything organized on this tablet. And of course, I ended up not doing that. But what I did discover is that the tablet was a great place to draw digitally because it had this feeling of paper and the stylus. You could, you, you know, but you could erase it and do uh, undo and redo things. So I, I started sketching things on this tablet and then I was like, you know, the book is stalled. I was having trouble selling it or and getting people interested in it. And I said, um, I'm just going to play around and, and illustrate little things from this book and show them to my friends and see what they think. And so I picked um, some things and started drawing. And naturally, my style is very, um, I just have a very, you know, sort of illustrative style, a rough way of drawing and it's sort of and I did a few of them and I was like this looks exactly like those drawings in like chapter books from when I was mm -hmm. a kid mm -hmm. and this is exactly the feel I want to get out of it and then um and then I thought you know what I'm going to play with this because I remember I think some of those old books they they would give the illustrator they wouldn't give the illustrator the whole book they wouldn't tell them what it was about they wouldn't pay them very much and so the, there'd be drawings and and uh things about the book that almost were like misleading or there'd be the illustrations would not be in the right spot in the book mm -hmm. so you'd see something that was going to come later or it mm -hmm. would be so far past the time so anyway i started playing with that idea and like illustrating things that were not they're only tangentially related or very mysterious and then the whole thing just sort of snowballed from there and I was like this is good I, li I, I like it and it's actually part of the book now one of the really interesting things about that is that often like you're right the illustrations do occur at like a page after the action that they're describing or you know even before but you've also got the little blurb underneath the picture of what's happening which I kind of love that because it does give you that idea that someone's just given this illustrator a sentence and just go and draw this yeah no and I, I found myself like trying to play I, I'd pick sentences and play with them and try to come up with things that it, it was just a very it, it gave me something to do while I was sort of spinning my wheels and it ended up helping me propel myself to, to finish 
the book into the form that it that it is now. Mm. Yeah. No, I think it works really well. Did you have some direct influences for writing this book? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, I mean, I had a ton of indirect, I'm mean, a ton and ton and ton of indirect influences, but the, there was some very direct influences. So right before I started writing the book, um, I read this book by E.L. Doctorow called The Waterworks, which is not one of his better books, I think. And, um, but it is a, a fascinating book. And as I was reading it, that's when I decided that I could actually turn this short story idea I had into a novel and actually do it. Like somehow reading this this book gave me the insight or the ability to like run with it. And I, I think it's hard for me to explain exactly what it is, but the, the Waterworks is sort of a, a genre mix up. It's a historical fiction that has both Gothic and science fiction elements in it. Um, it's a mystery where the mystery is not really that important. Um, and and it's a very atmospheric book. And it also has this narrator who's, who's only tangentially present and involved, and he's more um, watching another figure do the important actions. And I, all of these things sort of played into the, the book that I wrote and in a very, I think, direct way. One of the other things about this book is that alt history kind of or alt future I should say that is yeah. there it kind of doesn't matter at all like it's kind of just a an irrelevant like it's a MacGuffin completely but it just kind of creates this like curiosity about something but it is like just a it's almost like a misdirection within the book I mean it's almost I, I feel like the whole book is is misdirection which I don't want people to take the wrong way mm. but um and yet I will say that there is a well thought out all future in there. Mm. I just was very, uh, I was very careful about not foregrounding it and mm. to make it because in truth, when you're living your, your life, how foregrounded is what the social order is and how everything works. Like we mm. we're already adjusted to it or adjusting to it. And it doesn't play a huge role um, I mean, it plays a huge role, but that role is sort of subsumed among the normal role of life. So that's how I, I didn't want this to be about that future way of living. I wanted it to be about a person living in that future, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. What are you currently working on? So I have, I have like three, three novels <laughs> in progress. Um, one of which is, is. Well, it's it's both finished and not finished because it's finished in that it's pretty much put together, but I, I feel that it's not working. So I'm going to revisit that. Um, and that that novel is also sort of a, a genre mix up, a match up, but it's a it's basically about a, a forgery of a of an ancient uh, memoir um, of one of the vandals who who um, was ruled. North Africa um, before the Romans reconquered it for a short period. And, and it's just this, this story um, of a modern um, classicist who forges this memoir and, and convinces her thesis advisor or, or her advisor that, it, that it's genuine and he steals it from her and publishes the, the work as his own. But then he gets caught up because it really is forged and she 
she reveals or, or convinces everyone that it's a forgery and ruins his career. So that, that's sort of the this, this story, but it's not quite working yet. So I'm, I'm going back to it. And then I have a couple other different novels in progress. Um, I also am trying to, to write up, I have about 10 short stories that I'm working on in various mm. uh, stages of completion that I want to um, iron up and then um, send, start sending them out. Okay. With this book as well, how long did it take you to write it from start to finish? So I started in 2019. Um, mm -hmm. I started in May and I, I wrote pretty straight from May through the end of June and finished a rough draft um, of about 80,000 words. Um, then I spent another two months revising it and adding. I was, I was trying to cut it down and I ended up adding another 20,000 words. <laughs> um, and I did that in October and November of that year. And then in 2020, I, I rewrote and revised it. I had um, a developmental editor help me sort of pick out some points and give me some advice. And then uh, 2021, so in 2021, I did one more rewrite and, and now, yeah, it's published this year. So about three full years with lots of not doing anything in between uh, yeah. furious bouts of, of writing and rewriting. Mm. Wow. Okay. With that, uh, do you have some advice for writers working on books? Do you, what, what do you advise them to do? Oh my God. That's a really good question. I, I, first off, I just don't believe that advice is possible because I think everybody has their own way of doing it. There's no, there's, there's no shortcuts. There's no, whatever. I, I do think the, the thing that got me over the finish line was one saying, you know what, I can do this. I can mm -hmm. write a novel and I just erased all the doubt in my head about doing it. And then the other thing was just, I had word count goals and I, every day I wrote a little bit towards it and, and that helped me get, get to the end. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's different for everybody. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. I might ask you about your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Oh, I mean, so there's so many, I, mm. I, this is, uh, I totally blank up. I mean, pretty much everything ever written is the gateway for me. Um, <laughs> when, when I, and if I look at back at my reading, you know, when I was an adolescent and, and young adult, um, you know, it was, it was all the, you know, traditional stuff, Kurt Vonnegut, Pynchon, Gore Vidal, um, Mailer, really male and American. And, and I kind of like, it's kind of ugly to look back at it and think of what I missed um, at the time. I think, you know, Iris Murdoch, um, I started to, to develop more of a, you know, peripatetic reading habit. And then I just stopped reading fiction altogether for a long time, um, was reading a lot of nonfiction books and and only recently have I sort of gone back to fiction and now um I think one of the books the two I would say the two books that really opened my mind and and expanded what what I can do or, th or I think that literature can do were Middlemarch and Moby Dick and I read them like sort of right next to each other and I think they're two very different kinds of books but they're both 
they both just knock me over. I think they're just amazing documents. One from sort of a, a social science standpoint, combining the best things about like a, a romance with with this real study of like the way societies work and are put together. And then Moby Dick, which is just a religious document, um, mm. a, a sort of secular religious document. What books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to? Uh, so I'm actually, I'm so bad because I read like, I don't know, like a dozen or two dozen mm. books at a time. And I read a little bit and I read a little bit. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I've finished it. But right now I'm reading um, Nixon Agonistis by Gary Wills and um, another book, Thinking Like an Economist. Um, I'm also reading Alec Guinness's memoirs, which I'm finding really charming. Um and uh, this book, We Have Never Been Modern, uh, which is an interesting short little book. Um, just finished The Greeks and the Irrational by E.R. Dodds. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those those are some of the books that I'm reading now. Um, I'm also really excited to break into um, The Evening Hero, uh, which is by one of my Twitter friends. Um, and that's been on my to, to read pile for a while. Um, Who's that by? That's by Marie Youngok Lee. Um, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to read that one. This book, The Logic of Practice uh, by Bourdieu, which was really good. Um, I'm reading, I picked up a bunch of Iris Murdoch that I hadn't read yet, uh, but I haven't cracked into that yet. Whenever I do a lot of writing, I um, I do a lot less reading I find Mm -hmm. which is interesting like I'll do a a huge burst of reading and then I'll I'll read a lot less while I'm actually writing yeah I feel like they're they're almost like I think the reading and the writing time cut into each other it sounds like as well you're balancing that kind of like when you're writing probably balancing the fiction slash non-fiction yeah I really only really recently have I started reading fiction again which Mm -hmm. is interesting I think you know I don't know. For me, um, when when times are difficult or I'm stressed out, I actually gravitate towards nonfiction mm-hmm. as a way of like just because it's about calmly approaching the world and trying to understand it, which also I think is is the job of fiction. But I find it, I think, easier to to think at that level mm-hmm. um, and sort of deal with scenarios although things maybe are getting a little better in the world we'll see (laughs) well are there any good bookshops in cherry valley there is uh one the cherry valley bookstore which uh, has a ton of um it's a used bookstore there's just a ton a ton of 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 used books and um that's been there for as long as i i remember um and i'll pop in there every now and again although i right now until i can get some more bookshelves put up where they're sort of like we're full up on on books <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on beyond the zero we're speaking with ben harnett this week's episode is brought to you by my interview with jr moringer the ghostwriter of prince harry's new book spare here's a sneak peek Hey Josh, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, what the fuck? I thought you said this interview was anonymous. 
Oh shit, can we start again? Yeah, okay, but just don't fuck it up this time. The Pulitzer Committee will have my balls. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Ben's Desert Island Books. Desert Island Books. I, again, I'm going to gravitate towards nonfiction, I think. Um, And it's always towards these big, big books with a very um, particular perspective. It's it's books that's like, you know, that you're talking to the person. So I'm thinking of like Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Now, there's a, a book that has a really powerful voice. It's filled with all kinds of events and thoughts and and it's got a little bit of everything philosophy history whatever so that's that's a thing you can just read and read and read i guess until you get sick of gibbon which hasn't happened to me yet um another book uh more recently um is piketty uh, capital and ideology there's another big thick book that is just about interesting occurrences I think if you are gonna um, for fiction, I have some. I have a ton of comfort books. One of them is is sort of all of Jane Austen, which I just have read over and over and over again. And uh, Pride and Prejudice is just a, a favorite uh, little little confection that I that I super enjoy. Um, obviously, uh, Moby Dick is another one. Um, I think there are some books that you can read over and over and over again and not sort of tire of them. But there's also some books that are just fantastic books. But if you read them more than once, that that's probably enough. Um, mm-hmm. Conrad, I think, falls under that category of somebody who like, I don't know, it's it's amazing to read, but I some of them I would not like to read again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's quite a few books like that that I think hit you hard the first time, but then, yeah, you've got no desire to go back to. Yeah, that's that's good. The Desert Island one is is really tricky. I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, part of the reason I, at least when I was commuting, I really enjoyed my ebooks was that I could have so many books because you always think that you want to read something and then you realize you're not in the mood for it, and so you want to have a lot of different options. Mm. Yes, I think that's a good idea. No one's actually suggested that, but taking your e-reader to a desert island, I think that's a great idea. Well, you'd need that and a source of electricity. Well, I guess if you had a nice solar collector, mm. uh, you'd be all set. Yeah, I should have changed it to uh, Cabin in the Woods for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm already, you know, my Cabin in the Woods collection is already well-assembled. But again, <laughs> I'm also, yeah, I don't really have like, favorite books but I like to have a lot of books around I mean Mm. I think we've got a couple hundred at the cabin here and then at the house you know I don't know a thousand so I like to keep my books around me (laughs) very good all right well I should probably let you go it's been a pleasure speaking with you but before I do let you go do you want to tell us where we can go and buy the happy valley and where we can get in touch with you online Sure. Um, it has a website, thehappyvalleynovel.com. Um, so you can visit that and you should be able to find my contact information 
and also uh, purchase the book as a paperback or, or an e-book. E and of course, you could also ask your local bookstore to stock it um, or, or your library, which would be amazing. Brilliant. And we can look forward to seeing lots more photos of your beautiful uh, housing projects. And I hope you move in very soon. Yeah. Find me on Instagram. You will see. <laughs> All right. It's been a pleasure. Uh, good luck with moving and have a very happy Christmas and New Year. Thank you so much. You as well. And I look forward to seeing you online. Thanks once again to Ben Harnett. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.